Well, we're continuing in our series through the Gospel of Matthew. We're in the Sermon on the Mount and we're moving towards Jesus' teaching on giving and prayer and the Lord's Prayer that we'll come to in chapter 6. But before we get there, we're going to see today Jesus' teaching about an angry heart and the motivation behind some of our emotion. Jesus is speaking, as you know, to a crowd on a hillside in Galilee, and that includes some of the scribes and the Pharisees, the lawmakers, the teachers of the people. And in this little passage, see how many times Jesus says, you have heard it said, but I say to you. He's gonna make them think again about the old scriptures. They thought they understood, but instead he's gonna show them the meaning that they seem to have completely missed in it. And this teaching affects them in three ways, and it affects us too. It affects their view of themselves, and it challenges their heart attitudes. It affects their worship of God, and it affects how they view others and the need for reconciliation with them. So the first thing we're going to see is this issue of our heart, attitudes, and the challenge to themselves in verses 21 and, and 22. Now, if we were to take a survey, a lot of people like doing surveys, companies push them out for all sorts of reasons, but if we took a survey of all the people in all the churches of this country today and said, how many people have you killed? It can be anonymous. You can tick, tick it and send it back in. What do you think the answer would be? Probably not very many, perhaps a tiny number, perhaps zero. But is that enough? Would that issue, if that was the only question on the survey, would that issue enough or alone make me a righteous person? Would it make you a righteous person? If you could just tick a box and say, I haven't killed anyone. If the law says don't kill, and I don't, does that make me good? Well, Jesus says in verse 21, he says, you have heard that it was said to those of old, or some translations by the men of old, you shall not murder. Now that phrase, you have heard it said, is a way of him saying to the people, this is in the scriptures, this is in the Old Testament. And perhaps some of the people that were there listening to that um, message that day, perhaps they couldn't read the Hebrew for themselves. And perhaps the rabbis and the scribes would tell them what it meant. But Jesus says now, but I say to you, so you've heard that this thing was said, you know, you believe that it's wrong to murder because if you do, then the law will catch up with you. You could get caught, you could get punished. And perhaps as, as he said that, perhaps heads would have nodded. Yes, the scribes and the Pharisees would say yes, amen to that. We're against murder, we don't murder. We've been taught well by our teachers that murder is an evil thing, so we don't do it. No chance, you'll never catch me in court for murder. But that's how they convinced themselves that they were righteous because I'd never murder anyone, 
So I must therefore be all right. I must be righteous. They do it in verse 27 as well with the issue of adultery. It was like a mechanical and clinical thing. Do not murder. Tick, I have not murdered. But you see, that doesn't get to the heart of the issue, does it? Because if you were here last Sunday, or if you just look back to verse 20 in this chapter, Jesus said in verse 20, I say to you that unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and the Pharisees, you shall surely never enter the kingdom of heaven. And we thought last week about how the righteousness that Jesus demands is a holy, a complete, a perfect and full keeping of the law, which I can't do on my own and you can't do on your own. And even those scribes and Pharisees, no matter where they set themselves to be, could not do. Jesus said, not murdering is just not enough. That's not the standard. That's not the proof of what your heart is like inside. Imagine that we had to give God an account at the end of each evening for how we've lived today and why God should listen to us and why God should accept us. And instead of pleading what the Lord Jesus Christ has done for, for us, all we could say is, well, I didn't kill anyone today. Do I think that's going to cut it? It's not. He said, you have heard that it was said of old, you shall not murder and whoever murders will be in danger of the judgment. Well, that was true to the Old Testament scriptures, wasn't it? In Numbers chapter 35, it says that when someone commits murder, then they're to die. In Genesis chapter nine and verse six, it says, whoever sheds a man's blood by man, his blood shall be shed. So, so that was accurate. But Jesus says, hey, this doesn't go far enough. This doesn't get to what you're like inside. Why do people murder or steal or commit adultery or do other things that you can see? What drives it? How does it start? There's attitudes in us. There's thoughts that form and develop and are nurtured and we don't stop them. There's thoughts in our heads that no one else sees. But God does, doesn't he? God sees. What do they say about God and his holy character? They don't say anything about that here. All they said was, don't murder or you'll get found out and you'll get in trouble. And Jesus is going to take this teaching deeper. Elsewhere in the Old Testament, there's plenty that talks about what we're to be like on the inside and how God sees what we're like on the inside. Psalm 51 and verse six tells us that God desires truth in the inward parts. Deuteronomy chapter six and verse five tells us the well-known verse, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and all your soul and all your might. And in Leviticus chapter 19 and verse 17, God says, you shall not hate you shall not hate your brother in your heart. And the next verse says, you shall not take vengeance nor bear any grudge against the children of your people, but you shall love your neighbor as yourself. I am the Lord. 
says God. And Jesus ties those two of those verses together, doesn't he, in Matthew chapter 22, when the Pharisees ask him, which is the greatest commandment of all? In Jeremiah chapter 17, in verse 10, it says, I, the Lord, search the heart. I test the mind, even to give every man according to his ways and according to the fruit of his doings. All these things God had said about what happens in here and in here. But so much of their teaching was just about how things looked on the outside, how other people saw you and what other people thought about you. And so Jesus says in verse 22, but I say to you, let me tell you something that you need to hear. And there's these three examples that he gives or three illustrations that he gives in verse 22. Firstly, he says, whoever is angry with his brother without a cause shall be in danger of the judgment. You want me to show you how serious this issue is? Says Jesus, well, who's angry with their brother? Now, if we were honest, if we all had to say, Sometimes the children play a game where they stand up and you ask people a question and as you have to answer yes to the question, then you have to sit down and you're out. If we all stood up and I said, when were you last angry? Last Sunday? Last Monday? Last Tuesday? This Wednesday? Today? When would you be sitting down? When would I be sitting down? We wouldn't last very long, probably would we? What were we angry about when we were last angry? The family, the kids, something to do with work, money. This is human nature, this is the reality. But this is not about righteous anger. Remember how Jesus was angry with the traders in the temple and he drove them out and said, this is my father's house. This is not a place of buying and selling and changing money. And it's true to say that there's things going on in our world, in our country, maybe even in our city that should concern us. There's great injustices happening. We thought just on Wednesday evening, didn't we, as Pete mentioned about how Christians in India are undergoing great persecution at this time, for an example. And there are things that should greatly concern us. But Jesus here is talking about a selfish anger, a brooding and simmering anger that we keep in our hearts and have you ever experienced that? Just consumes you, just eats you up, becomes an obsession and it's directed at him or her or them. And when you hold a grudge like that against somebody, then even though people might not see it, even though they might not see it because you keep it in well, you're just as guilty, says Jesus, as the one who's actually taken a life. 1 John chapter 3 and verse 15 says, whoever hates his brother is a murderer. Now I work for a law firm and I'm not a lawyer so I don't go in and out of courts but I don't know of a court that would give the death penalty to somebody just for getting angry. Do you? But this is Jesus speaking. We need to put on his righteousness because our hearts are shown up for what they are. And he says, whoever is angry with their brother without a cause 
shall be in danger of the judgment. Of course, the next verse in 1 John chapter 3, verse 16 says, By this we know love, because he laid down his life for us, and we also ought to lay our lives down for the brethren. That's what we need, isn't it? That's how we can be right with him, because of what he has done for us. And then he says, in verse 22, of Matthew chapter 5, whoever shall say to his brother, Raka, shall be in danger of the council. And these were places where the judgments would be strict, could often be death. And he says to, the, to his hearers on that mountain, on that hillside, you're afraid of the death penalty for murder? Well, on God's terms, it ought to be the same penalty for anger and the same penalty for calling someone a fool or an idiot or whatever insulting term of expression. That word raka could be a good scouse expression, couldn't it? You could, Liverpool people haven't adopted that one, raka. But it's a word of arrogant contempt for somebody, sort of thing you might hear out and about in town today. And Jesus says that is murder in the heart. That deserves the penalty. We thought in Proverbs, with the verse in Proverbs chapter 4 and verse 23 of this issue of guarding our hearts, guarding our hearts and how important that is. Are you guarding your heart? Do you have attitudes in your heart that are allowed to sit and simmer and fester and we haven't dealt with them, and we haven't asked God to deal with them. And he says again at the end of this verse 22, whoever says you fool shall be in danger of hellfire. And this is the strongest condemnation, isn't it? Have you ever called someone a fool or a moron? That's the type of language that the verse uses. But the Psalms say, the fool has said in his heart, there is no God. And how many people live that way? And where are they headed? With no thought for God and no regard for him. But Jesus says, if you insult people like this, if that's what is coming out of you, if that's what's inside you, and then that's what comes out of you because of how you feel in your heart, then look at what you should get. Could he be any stronger to be in danger of this word that's translated hellfire or the word Gehenna and the picture is of a fire that never goes out. A fire that never goes out just because of what we say, just because of what we think, just because of what's inside us. Don't we need to guard our hearts? to deal with those feelings, to come to the Lord and to come to him and make sure that we're not just putting up a false front like some of those religious leaders did with their empty teachings. Have we truly come and humbled ourselves before the Lord? And then he says in verses 23 and 24, secondly, we need to think about our worship of God. This issue affects our worship of God. 
It affects not just their self-righteousness that we've thought about, but it affects the worship of God. And worship was a major issue, wasn't it, with the scribes and with the Pharisees. Their lives revolved in many ways around the practice of worship. Some would be in the temple all the time doing this, doing that, preparing sacrifices, observing the law. And here our Lord has something to say about this. He says in verse 23, If you bring your gift to the altar, and there you remember that your brother has anything against you, leave there your gift before the altar go your way first be reconciled to your brother and then come and offer your gift be reconciled first that's a powerful point isn't it that broken relationships can be an obstacle to true worship to stand up and make a, an act of worshiping god while you have broken relationships here 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 grievances, things not sorted out, things not resolved, is not right. I wonder what those religious teachers thought. Perhaps here's a scenario. Here was a Jewish man with his own sacrifice to bring and he comes and he offers his sacrifice, gives it to the priest and he's right there and they're about to do it. And suddenly it's as Jesus' words say to him, do you remember your brother? You got something against him? Or he's got something against you? Then stop. Leave the altar. Put that thing down. Don't make that sacrifice until you've gone and you've found your brother or you've found your sister and you've settled things out. You've sorted things out with them. And then come back. And when you've sorted it out, you can make your sacrifice to God. Well, really, this wasn't anything new. They knew this. This had been God's standard, hadn't it? In Isaiah chapter 1, God had said to Israel, Your incense is an abomination to me. Your new moons and your feasts my soul hates. They're a trouble to me. I'm weary of the whole thing. Why? He goes on, Your hands are full of blood. Seek justice. Relieve the oppressed. Judge the fatherless and plead for the widow. In other words, deal with your brothers and sisters properly, and then come and deal with me. In Jeremiah chapter 7, God said, will you steal, will you murder, will you commit adultery, and will you swear falsely and burn incense to Baal, and walk after other gods? Will you do all those things, and then come and stand before me in this house? If that's how it's going to be, he says, take it away. I don't want any of it. Go away until it's right with your brother and your sister. It isn't even necessarily that you're angry, is it? It could be that they've got something against you. Maybe it's my fault. Maybe it's his fault or her fault. In verse 22, Jesus had said, if you're angry, then you're in danger of condemnation. And then in the next verse, he says, if somebody's got something against you, it's a problem. Go away and sort it out and come and then offer your gift. That's a challenge to me this morning. Is that a challenge to you this morning that there's something we have to get straightened out with somebody? 
any upset or bitterness or old problems that we know there is between me and him or her. This verse is telling me that I should take the initiative to try and sort it out. And that can be countercultural, can't it? If someone's got a problem with me, then they should come to me to sort it out, says the world. I get that in work all the time. That's his problem, not my problem. But that's not this teaching. And how far does it go? You might say, if you're, if you're quite a high-profile figure or a public figure and you say things, well, people will disagree with you all the time. Am I responsible for all of that? Well, perhaps Romans chapter 12 and verse 18 is helpful here, which says, if it is possible and as much as depends upon you, then live peaceably with all men, us with them and them with us, as much as it depends upon me as much as is within my control. And how transforming a thought could that be for us as, ch as a church, as churches, as families, as a church family? Can we make it a priority to be sure that there is th this unity between us in the sense of no arguments, no unresolved bitterness, no unre unresolved quarrels? And when we come to the Lord's table, we say, don't we, from 1 Corinthians in chapter 11, don't take the elements in an unworthy manner. Examine ourselves. Is there un an unresolved issue between you and another brother or sister that's a problem? Because the Bible says in Psalm 66 and verse 18, it says, if I regard iniquity in my heart, the Lord will not hear me. In 1 Samuel 15, it says, Has the Lord as great a delight in burnt offerings and sacrifice as in obeying the voice of the Lord? Behold, it says, to obey is better than sacrifice and to heed, to do God's word, is better than the fat of rams. And it's very stark in 1 John. 1 John chapter 4 and verse 20 says, If someone says, I love God, and yet hates his brother, then he is a liar. Why? Because he who does not love his brother, who he has seen, then how can he love God, who he has not seen? This is the commandment we have from him, that he who loves God must love his brother also. If we say we love God, we have a responsibility to each other, don't we? And that leads us into our final point. Reconciliation. Reconciliation. And our relations with one another, but also with the Lord. Now that you've left it to get right, so you can worship God, he says in verse 25 and 26, Find your adversary quickly. Agree with him quickly while you are on the way in case your adversary delivers you to the judge and the judge delivers you to the officer and then you be put in prison. And I say to you, you will not come out from there until you have paid the last penny. Now what's Jesus saying here? He's saying you better go and get it right with your brother again in a different way. And he uses an illustration borrowed from the old uh, legal method of, of how 
debtors were dealt with in society at that time. If you've got a debt hanging over you, then can you sort it out quickly with the person you owe the money to? The key is there in verse 25, quickly. Do it now. If you can do it now, do it now. We often put things off, don't we? Very good at putting things off. I'll do that tomorrow. I'll sort that out another time. But tomorrow may be too late. That's the implication. If you owe somebody money and it gets taken to court and you can't pay, you'll be put in prison. And you'll be put in prison until you can pay the debt back. But then how can you pay the debt back while you're in prison? You can't, can you? So Jesus says to them, sort it out now while you can. You can sort things out today. You might not be able to sort them out tomorrow. You can't worship me unless your relations are right. So hurry, do it quickly and make them right. Don't let it go too far. Don't let it go to the place where God in judgment moves in. Act before then. You see, the Bible is clear that time is short and that death is certain. 2 Corinthians chapter 6 and verse 2 says, Behold, now is the accepted time. Now is the day of salvation. Because while we're thinking about a courtroom, and while we're thinking about a judge, Jesus is the judge who we'll have to stand before and we'll all have to stand before and we'll all have to give an account to on that last day. He's taught us about the heart. He's taught us about attitudes. He's teaching us about relations with others and about the worship of God. And yet there's one relationship that must be right for all of us isn't there? That relationship between us and God through the Lord Jesus Christ. He wants everyone listening as he was preaching there that day and he wants everyone listening as we read this passage and listen to his word this morning to see that we can't be righteous on our own. Where do we need to go? We need to go to him. We need to come to him. So do I. So do you if you haven't this morning. And Jesus had said in verse 20 that we need someone who could keep the law perfectly because we couldn't do it, I couldn't do it. And the Lord Jesus Christ, he came and he went to the cross and he went instead of me. And as the hymn says, and when I think of how at Calvary, he bore sin's penalty instead of me. What made it happen so? It was his will. This much I know, set me as now I show, at liberty. Can you say that this morning? That righteousness that we so desperately need comes as a gift from God. And Paul calls it the righteousness of Jesus Christ that as Ian reminded us a couple of weeks ago from Romans was imputed to us. And so, if you're not a Christian, you need to come to the Lord Jesus Christ and ask him and ask him for that forgiveness that he will give you. And if you are a Christian believer here today, if you're trusting in him, 
then let's guard our hearts. Let's weed out anger and pride and bitterness and enmity from our hearts. And let's love our brothers and sisters so that we are truly reconciled to each one of them. Because the Lord sets us the pattern, doesn't he? And we're called to follow it.